Amen. Well, today as we gather together, we are not in Hebrews. I think that um, we've been talking about the importance of where we're going in Hebrews, particularly in this eighth chapter of Hebrews, beginning at verse 7. What comes after that is of incredible importance in understanding the covenants and particularly in understanding the difference between the Old Covenant and New Covenant and how they function uh, in the working of God. And uh, it's an important subject. Uh, Baptist covenantal theology is based largely on this argument, and it's important for us to understand it. There's another place that we often quote from. In fact, I often quote from this. It's one of my favorite chapters in all of the Scriptures. And it's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, so we read it a moment ago. But if you'll turn there, we'll be ready to look at what Paul says there. Now, Paul is in this chapter also dealing with the difference, if you will, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and understanding that difference and seeing the importance of the New Covenant, even in light of the Old Covenant, that the Old Covenant had a purpose to lead us to the New Covenant, and it still has a purpose in revealing to us the will of God, but that its primary purpose was to take us by the hand and lead us to Christ. Now, that's not the language Paul uses here in 2 Corinthians. He uses, uses that elsewhere. But the point is he wants us to understand the purpose of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant in relationship to the New. And so it's important that we look at it. Now, Paul often deals with this subject. We can think of our time in Romans where we were in Romans at length and Paul dealing with the two covenants there and trying to understand them and comprehend them. There's much that he says about those covenants. And he says it sometimes in words that are shocking, sometimes in words that are confusing. We have to think about them carefully. Uh, Even in this section, we see things like he calls the Old Covenant the ministry of death. Now that's strong language, isn't it? But it would remind us very much of what he says in Romans about how the law came and he died, right? And how how, uh, the law revealed his sinfulness to him and this sort of thing. And we took great care to say in Romans that Paul is not in any way Uh, saying that the law is evil or bad. The law is righteous. It is good. It is holy. It is the revelation of the will of God. So there is nothing bad about it. But what he wants us to understand is that the law does something in him and in me and in you because the law is holy and we are not. So when we come to the law, when the law tells us, do not transgress God's command in this way, what's our natural, natural reaction to that? To transgress it. Right? That's what Paul's getting at. In fact, Paul uses the example in Romans of the Tenth Commandment. He says, I wouldn't have fully grasped sin. I wouldn't have fully understood sin if it had not been for the positive law God gave in the Old Covenant. The natural law told me a lot. I knew innately it was wrong to murder. I knew innately it was wrong to offer worship to false gods. But Paul says, what I might not have known outside of the law that God gave us is that even what goes on in my heart and mind is sin. Right? So the law says, thou shalt not covet. And I say, oh, my thoughts are sinful. My motives are sinful. My desires are sinful. And God doesn't overlook those things simply because they're not external. Right? He judges the heart. That's a message we find throughout Scripture. God judges the heart. So Paul uses that 10th commandment to say, the law showed me this. The positive commands that God gave us in the law showed this to me. It revealed it to me. The problem is, in revealing it to me, it gives me no way to solve the problem. How do I get a hold of my thoughts? How do I get a hold of my desires? Well, there are some things given to us in the New Covenant, and the new uh, relationship we have, uh, empowered by the Spirit. But he says, in the law, we had nothing other than the external command saying, do not do. 
Do not think. Do not desire. And Paul says, man, that's a hard thing to do. In fact, it's an impossibility. If you want to think about the examples we gave in Romans, it just reveals the natural state of the heart. I've said this example many times, but it's one that I think you can immediately grasp. If I say to you, on your way out, please don't look in the prayer room. If that door is open, you're going to look in the prayer room because you want to judge for yourself why you were told not to look in there. Again, I've given you no reason not to trust me on that, I don't think, but you're going to naturally want to do it. If your parent says, whatever you do, don't get in my closet. As soon as your mom leaves the house, what's the first thing you're going to want to do? What's in that closet that I'm not supposed to look at? Is it a birthday present? Is it something? You know, what is it? Again, it just shows in our hearts this natural desire toward rebellion, toward deciding for ourselves. And that, of course, is part of our fallen nature. We gave the example during Romans, I think, an important one of Augustine. In the second volume of his Confessions, he talked about one night going and raiding his neighbor's property and taking pears off his neighbor's pear tree. Why? He said, they weren't any better than the pears on my property. I didn't plan on selling them. I didn't really even want to eat them. There was just something about it that made me want to go across the boundary of my property to my neighbor's and take his pears. What is that? Augustine said, other than the working of sin in us, in fact, he says, in breaking that law, I feigned a false freedom from God. I felt for a moment like I decide for myself. I'm the one in charge. I make the decision. So again, Paul is looking to all these things and saying there is a natural working in us. Now that is not what Paul, excuse me, not what the author of Hebrews is doing. We recognize that. But they're both getting to the same place, which is understanding the difference between the covenants. And understanding what is given to us gloriously in the New Covenant, how it is far greater than what was given to us in the Old Covenant, because the purpose of the Old Covenant was to point to the New, to prepare for the New. And so we want to see what Paul says about that in 2 Corinthians. And he uses very difficult uh, language here at times, but we need to look at it. And we're going to uh, begin by looking at two points. First of all, the function of the Old Covenant, and second of all, the glory of the New Covenant. Now, as we do that, I'm going to read it again, but I'm going to start a little bit earlier because I want us to segue into it by what Paul says right before it, because it's really how he gets into this discussion. He says in chapter 2, verse 12, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, and I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddlers are peddling the Word of God, but as sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. 
Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who has also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty." But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, this chapter, and, and really these early chapters of Second Corinthians, are so deep and so interesting that we would spend quite a bit of time here if we were going through Second Corinthians. We're trying to survey it today to draw how it helps us with Hebrews as we move forward in understanding the covenants and what God has been doing and what God is doing. But today we want to begin by looking at this point of the function of the Old Covenant because Paul deals with this in a very unusual way as he gets into the theology of the covenants here. And it's interesting because we want to start by, the fact, uh, by noticing the fact that Paul is really offering a defense of his ministry. Now, if you know Paul, that's not abnormal, is it? He's often defending himself. We see it regularly in his writings. Uh, When we're in the Thessalonian epistles, Paul is over and over offering an apology, if you will, for his ministry to say, listen, not an apology in the sense that you'd say, I'm sorry, but an explanation, right? The the Greek word uh, here, I mean, he's given that as a defense of his ministry. And in the same way, as we look at this, Paul is doing the same thing. Why? Well, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to figure out why. If you've read 1 Corinthians or you're familiar with it, you know that the church had a lot of issues, didn't it? There were divisions, there were theological problems, there were uh, people who were in sin, and so on and so forth. There's a lot of issues going on in 1 Corinthians, and those carry over into 2 Corinthians. But there's another group that emerges in the course of 2 Corinthians who were in the church at Corinth who were a problem, and they are the super apostles, right? Such an interesting term. It literally means more than apostle. And I think that they get this name because they say, well, if Paul's an apostle, we're clearly something more. Why? Well, Paul's not all that impressive. He writes powerful letters, they say, but in person he's not a whole lot. His stature is small. He's not very bold-looking. He can write boldly, but get him here, and he's not nearly as bold as you'd expect. He's not that great a speaker. We are full of rhetoric and flourish. We make an argument that cannot be Beaten. And here's the real kicker, and Paul makes this defense all throughout this letter. You can see it in the background. If Paul is God's man, blessed as an apostle, why does God let him fall into so much trouble? He's constantly under persecution, constantly in jail, constantly falling into trouble. Not us. 
We claim to have God's blessing, and it's evident, isn't it? Nobody bothers us. Nobody harasses us. Nobody puts us in jail. We have no problem with the leaders. Everybody loves us. Everybody loves us. Paul doesn't run from this. It's not my purpose today. But at the very beginning of the letter, Paul says, I want you to know we had tribulation. I was in the midst of it. He goes on throughout this letter to say, let me tell you all the tribulation I've been through. Not that it's a sign that God has abandoned me, but God is using me. It's the evidence that God is using me, Paul says. So he doesn't run from that, but he comes to this defending his ministry to say that God had sent him here and that God has given him this ministry. And this ministry is an important ministry. What does he say about it? He brings the fragrance, if you will, of God through the gospel. Now, it's interesting the way he words this here because it's not a way most of us think about it here. He says this fragrance that he brings has a reaction, as all fragrance does, right? Some fragrances are, are a good fragrance, and you, you smell them and say, wow, that's incredible. I don't know what that is for you. Maybe it's a, a perfume or maybe something uh, cooked that you, when you smell it, you go, oh, that's apple pie or whatever. It's so good, right? Or maybe it's an expensive perfume, Right? But there's some fragrance that you're drawn to. It's a, it's a wonderful fragrance to you. Paul says the gospel is no different than that. But just as there are fragrances that you're drawn to, there are fragrances that repel you. Maybe garbage, right? Something rotting, right? There are smells that you go, mm, I don't want that near me. And Paul says in the same way the gospel, as I bring out the aroma of God in the gospel, it has the same effect. Look what he says in chapter 2. Verses 16, verse 16, he says, To the one we are the aroma, aroma of death leading to death. Right? The gospel comes. It has an unpleasant scent to it to some. They want nothing to do with it. And that leads to their own demise. Right? That's evident of their own demise. And to some, it is the aroma of life. They hear the gospel. They recognize the glory of it. And it leads to life. So Paul says, I'm in this calling of God to bring the aroma of God in the gospel to the world. And to some it brings life leading to life and to others death leading to death. But then he asks this question because the super apostles say, well, this is something we're good at doing. Paul doesn't say that. Paul says what? Who is sufficient for such things? What's implicit in that answer? No man. No man is sufficient to preach this message. It's through God's enablement that any man can preach the gospel. Any man can unfold these truths. And that's evident from the very beginning because what are we preaching but divine revelation? If God didn't give it to us, we couldn't preach it. Right? It's here in the scriptures. He's given it to mankind. But beyond that, Paul says, he has called me to come and bring this message. Now, in the face of that, and this is where the transition begins in chapter 3, he asked this group of people that is, questioning uh, his ministry, if you will, he asked him this question right at the very beginning. Do we begin again to commend ourselves or do we need others to do so? Epistles of commendation, letters of commendation. You know what those are, right? Letters of recommendation. Do I come to you and need to bring letters with me to tell you that I'm a minister of Christ? Would Peter satisfy you? Would James satisfy you? Who would satisfy you? Who could I bring a letter from that would satisfy you that I am a minister? Paul says, because if that's what you're requiring, it makes no sense because you are our epistle. Very much like what Paul says in other places where he says, the message was brought to you in signs and power. In other words, the working of God in me coming and preaching is the evidence that God sent me. 
And here he says in the same way, what is our epistle? What do you need? You yourselves are the testimony of the ministry. Because God has transformed you through the preaching that was done in your presence. You have been saved. You have been changed and transformed through the Spirit of the Lord, through the gospel that has been preached by us. You are the epistle. You are the evidence. What further thing do I need? Now, that's an important question. What is the purpose of asking for a letter of recommendation? You know, when a person comes into a church, oftentimes we ask for a church letter, something like that. There's a reason that was done in the early churches, a reason we've carried that forward. There are good reasons for that sort of thing. But in essence, that letter is another church testifying on your behalf, right, that you are a trustworthy member of the church of Jesus Christ, that they've seen evidence of it, they testify to it. In the early church, it functioned very much in this way. You can trust this person, right? They're not, uh, they're not working on behalf of somebody trying to sneak into the church. Right? They're not trying to undermine the work. That's what the letters functioned on in the early days. Now it's much more of a testimony. But Paul says, after I've been here for 15 or 20 years, what sense would it make for you to go, you know what, we were looking through the records, and even though you've been here for 15 years, we never got a letter of recommendation from you. It must have been an oversight, but we don't have one on record. And we're going to have to suspend your membership until we get it. Paul's like, I've been here for 15 years. What more evidence would you need other than what I've been doing here? What more could the previous church tell you than what you know here and what I'm doing here? He says at that point, it makes no sense to ask for a letter when the fullness of something has come, when the relationship's been established. The purpose of the letter is to introduce Now that we have relationship, the letter has lost its purpose. Its introductory purpose has been surpassed. It's no longer needed. Now you can see the subtle thing Paul's going to do here, can't you? He's talking about a letter of recommendation and a relationship, but he's really transitioning to the covenants. You see that here? He says, you are our epistle written on in the hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ. He's saying not just our epistle, our work being evidence, but the evidence of the work of Christ being done. Ministered by us, God graced us to be a part of it. He allowed us to be a part of it. But notice this, you are not written with ink. That's a weird thing to say. Except that he's referring here to the comparison back to a letter of recommendation. You're not written in ink like a a letter that has a limited purpose. You're written in the Spirit. You're a living, breathing testimony of what Christ does in people. You are the example. You are the fullness of my ministry and that my ministry is to preach the gospel that God's people will be saved. And you're in evidence that that is at work. You are, who needs this letter written in ink when what you see is a testimony in spirit? But notice what he says here. Because if you think this is just about a letter of recommendation, you quickly see that Paul's going beyond that. Because he says, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. Now, no one expects a letter of recommendation, even in that day, to come on a tablet of stone. Clearly, this is a reference to the Sinai covenant. A reference to God giving the law at Sinai, that old covenant being given. And he's making this comparison here, now between this letter of recommendation, as an analogy, as a a picture, as a type of the covenants, right? He says, now, no longer written on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. Now, there's a lot of places we could go. I'm going to try to reserve this a little bit because Hebrews is going to go there. Where's the first place you think? We'll obviously go to Exodus, right, and see where the 
the law is given. But we would also think we need to go to Jeremiah 31, don't we? Where he says there is a, a promised covenant, right? A prom- promised work of God, not written on tablets of stone, but on sarkinos or sarks, flesh heart, right? Written on the heart. There's a covenant coming, written inwardly by God, not externally on tablets of stone. So all these are references that we can clearly delineate from what Paul is arguing here that the author of Hebrews will get very explicit about. I have to save that for a future week. But we know the reference here. He says it's going to be written not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. The very thing he says has been done in you. As a transformed believer in Christ, you are, if you will, the tablet of flesh that's been written on in the heart by God. The living, breathing example of God's saving power. Of what the new covenant does. Right? Of what it it is purpose to do, which is to be efficacious in saving. That's what he says is happening here. And he goes on to say we trust in God and all these things, but, but very quickly understand what he's getting at here. It's important. It's written in spirit, not in ink, not in letter. Now he's making here the distinction between what was done on the commandments, written by the hand of God, engraved on tablets of stone, and what he's doing in the heart by his spirit, by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is working in our hearts to write His law upon us, to write His will upon us, to transform us. And Paul will get a little bit more into this as we move forward. But again, he makes this point that the letter of recommendation is very much like the relationship of the covenants. Why? The letter of recommendation introduces us to a relationship. As someone comes into our church and they say, uh, in, the, in the old days, in Paul's day, you would have come the first time with letters. And you would have said, here's a letter from our pastor, and here's a letter from uh, some other men in our church. Maybe you know some of them. I heard you know such and such person in Troas, and I got a letter from him, so you'll know you can trust me. That's how the letters functioned much in that day. Somebody introduced a believer. Barnabas took Paul by the hand and took him into Jerusalem to introduce him to the fellowship, to say, listen, I know what you've heard about Paul, maybe what you've experienced about Paul, but I'm vouching for him now. I'm vouching for him now. In the same way, letters work this way. But once the fullness of relationship has come, what purpose is the letter other than to lead to that relationship? So in other words, to give back the example I gave a minute ago, if I recognize in your file there was never a letter of recommendation and you've been at our church serving for 20 years, what sense does it make to say, that church you were at for three years before you came here, we need a letter from them. We don't have it, so our relationship is void. It makes no sense. And so what Paul is saying, in the same way the Old Covenant had an important purpose, its purpose was to introduce us, as Paul says elsewhere, to lead us to Christ. That was its purpose. The end of the law is Christ Jesus, Paul says. Its purpose was to lead us to Christ. It has other functions now. It's not devoid. It's not Uh, without interest to us. It reveals the will of God. The positive law of God is given to us. There's much in it that we understand about God, and, and it's important, and we'll get into that in Hebrews more. But its primary purpose was to lead us to Christ. And Paul says, once we have that, then what is the purpose of going back to the to the previous? What purpose is that letter of recommendation when you have the relationship? What purpose is going back to Moses when you have Christ? Now, we're going to get into the Hebrews way of fleshing that out in future weeks. But before we do that, I want us to see another point. Because Paul says, if we recognize the function of the old covenant law, 
that it was to lead us to Christ. By the way, that is the entire argument of Hebrews, isn't it? Everything in Hebrews is about how it's a shadow of something greater, a type of an antitype. And that antitype functions in Christ and His covenant, His priesthood. So again, the same argument here. But if we've seen then the function of the Old Covenant in leading us to the New Covenant and to Christ, we want to also see the glory of the New Covenant. Because if you think about it for a minute, there is a glory mentioned here in the New Covenant. And that is not to say that there is not a glory in the Old Covenant. I've tried to say this over and over again. Paul in Romans, because he deals with some difficult language about the law, is very careful to say, listen, the law is holy. The law is good. When I'm talking about the function of the law and how it impacts us in in judgment or death, I don't in any way mean to despair or to, I guess I want to say, uh, to, to lessen the importance of the law or its glory or its goodness or its righteousness or its Uh, holiness, right? These are all things that the law has because they're given by God. They're the declaration of God, the Word of God, given to man by God. They are good, right? The law is good. And Paul makes that point everywhere. But he says the purpose of the law, uh, let me put it this way, the, the giving of the law was in weakness. This is the exact language we get in Hebrews, isn't it? That it was in weakness. Paul says if it wasn't, why would there need to be something to succeed it? Why would there be something after it, something different from it? Much like the ministry of Christ, if Aaron or Levi was enough, why the promise of another priesthood? Why Melchizedek? What's the need of that? Why wouldn't the Messiah have come as a Levite and a priest of the Old Covenant? But there was something the Old Covenant couldn't do. It wasn't effectual in doing. It had a purpose, and it perfectly fulfilled its purpose. But its purpose wasn't the purpose of the New Covenant. The New Covenant is given in Christ for the salvation of men. The Old Covenant points to our need of it. Again, we'll save that for Hebrews a little bit more. But again, we should not think in any way that the Old Covenant is devoid of glory. Of course it has glory. It's given by God who is all-glorious. It reveals His will. His will is all-glorious, perfectly righteous and holy. So again, we recognize this, and Paul makes it abundantly clear in our writing today because he says this, He says, but think about this. Don't think that the new covenant is of the same glory. It's of a greater glory. Now, why does he say this? Well, he makes it very clear to us. He says, by the way, he calls the the ministry of the old covenant the ministry of death. Now, that's strange wording, isn't it? But what does he mean by this? He means that as he looks at the law and it gives the positive and moral commands of God, he isn't able to meet them. They're good. They're righteous. He just isn't able to meet them. Right? In his fallen nature. He is unable to meet them. So the function of them is to present to him all his violations of the holy will of God and to say to him, you are unworthy, right? You are condemnable. You are condemned by the law. So Paul simply means this, that it has this ministry of condemnation before us because it points out to us all the places we've fallen short. We talked in Romans about how when you point to one part of the law and say, well, I've kept this one. Have you? You kept it all your life? You may have seen Ray Comfort through the years. You know, he'll say, have you ever stolen anything? And people will be like, oh, no, no. Like nothing, not even an eraser off somebody else's desk? Not a pen out of a filing cabinet at work? Didn't pick up something off somebody's desk? Realize you took it and said, eh, I'm not going to take it back. I'm just going to keep it. Right? He said, by that standard, we've all stolen. And there are other ways that you can word this. We've stolen God's glory, certainly, in desiring it for ourselves. But 
again, as you walk through these things and you think about them, Paul says the law points to us. Even if we can find a place where we say, I've done pretty good on keeping this today. You didn't keep it yesterday. You won't keep it tomorrow. And even if you point to even just the Ten Commandments, sum it down to the Ten Commandments and say, well, I can find one of the covenants or one of the commandments I've kept today. Even if that's true, several others point back at you and say, you didn't keep this one. You weren't perfect in your honesty. You didn't perfectly love God today. You had some idol that creeped into your heart today for just a moment maybe. But for a moment you cared more about television or more about money or more about your own happiness than you did God's glory. See, at the end of the day, the law shows us we cannot keep it. It's glorious. And that's the problem. We're not glorious. The law is holy. The problem is we're not holy. The law is righteous. The problem is we're not righteous in Adam. And so again, that's what Paul is saying. It ultimately functions as a ministry of death. It points us to death. It's written and engraved on these external stones and lay down the law before us. Thou shalt not... I've fallen short again. I've fallen short again. But he says, if that has glory, and it does, the ministry of death, how much more glorious would we expect the ministry of life to be, as he words it? The ministry that is in Christ, not written on tablets of stone, external to us, but written on our hearts by God Himself through the empowerment of the Spirit. How much more glorious? Well, Paul says, it is glorious. He says, it's more glorious. In fact, if you look at his, his wording there, he says it. For He says, if uh, verse 7, if you look at it, he says, But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily upon the face of Moses... Because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. You all know that reference in Exodus, right? Paul goes into the presence of God and all this, and he's a glow on his face. And as he comes back, he covers it. Now, as we read Exodus, we think that's about fear, don't we? It reads that way. They're terrified by this glory that's on Moses' face, so he covers it up. But Paul says, if you read it that way, you didn't fully understand what's happening. It wasn't just that they were afraid and so Moses covered his face. Moses realized something about that glory that he didn't want them to look upon. And that's that it fades away. It fades away. As much as his face shone coming down, the next day not so much. And the next day even less. And the next day even less. So it has a glory, but there's something we need to recognize about that glory. But if that glory, a glory that's passing away, is glorious, he says in verse 8, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious. Does it fade? Does it fade away? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. And then what I quote all all the time, it feels like, but it's important. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. Do Do you see what he's saying here? When you look upon the new covenant in Christ's work, it's so glorious that for a moment it makes the glorious old covenant look a little less glorious. And I think Paul's argument is, in a very real way, it is less glorious for us. And here's why. Because Moses had to cover his face so that the children of Israel would not see that that glory fades. Now, what glory is he talking about? The glory of God? God's glory does not fade. No, it means the glory of the old covenant. The glory that's revealed to us in the old covenant is a fading glory. It's not meant to be eternal. The Old Covenant's purpose is not eternal. The Old Covenant had an important purpose. But it was a temporal purpose. It was a purpose to lead us to something greater than itself. 
all that we've been looking at in Hebrews is about this very thing. Aaron was not the end. Aaron was to point us to Melchizedek, to Christ, the, the ultimate priest. Not that Melchizedek is Christ, but to say that priesthood embodied in Christ. Right? It was to point to that. All the things that we've looked at along the way in Hebrews are pointing forward to say, here is the antitype to which that type was pointing. And likewise, the Old Covenant, great, glorious as it was, had a temporal purpose to point us to the superseding, all-glorious and eternal covenant in Christ. And that's what he says. This glory doesn't fade. No need for a mask. Look what he says there. He said Moses needed a mask. We, we recognize that. But he says we don't. He says we have such hope. We use great boldness of speech. We have nothing to cover up. Moses had to be careful what he revealed because it had a glory that was passing. But the covenant we are a part of, this eternal new covenant in Christ, it is a covenant which has a never-ending glory, a glory that we don't have to put a veil over. He goes on to say that these things are, are veiled in the old covenant, right? Revealed in Christ. You wouldn't fully understand what's happening there in Exodus if you didn't have the new covenant. Didn't have the New Testament, I mean to say. If you didn't have what Paul writes here, we wouldn't fully understand what happened in Exodus. But with it, the veil drops away. We have the full revelation of what God has been doing. We understand that the priesthood and the law had a purpose. But that purpose was temporal. That purpose was, as Paul says elsewhere, came in at the side until the seed should come. Well, once the seed comes in Christ, then he says that's like that letter of recommendation. See how all this works together? What purpose is a letter of recommendation once you have the relationship? Do I need somebody to vouch for my wife after all these years? Do I need to go back, you know, I never got anybody's, you know, giving a reference for you back when we first started dating, so I'm going to basically annul the marriage temporarily until I have that. Makes no sense. Who can testify to my wife better than I can? No one. So again, in the same way, what he's saying is, once you have the fullness of what's done in Christ, then you recognize the purpose of the old covenant. Now, if you understand that, then you're going to clear up very quickly what's going on in Hebrews, right? On if the old covenant was sufficient, why the need of a new one? If it wasn't weak, why the need of a new one? If it was the end, why the need of a new one? So again, my friends, we need to see this. There's an importance here to recognize that the law exists. The covenant existed. It was given for a time. But there's another difference here that we need to recognize as well. It's subtle, but it's here. The glory of the old covenant was an external glory to us. It was the glory of God. Right? Revealed through His law. Moses could get near it. Moses could kind of shine back the glory just a bit. But it was external to him and it faded away. The glory of the new covenant is different. Because look at what he says here. He says in verse 18, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, that word transformed is an important word. We're being changed. New creation in Christ. The Holy Spirit at work in us to make us something different than what we once were. We can say in our justification, immediately different, right? A new creature in Christ. But even through our sanctification by the Spirit, He is transforming us 
conforming us to the image of Christ. But this work isn't external to us, is it? It is internal to us by a spirit who is in us at work. So again, Paul says, there's another difference here between the effectiveness of the two covenants. One covenant external on tablets of stone written that way. One written in our hearts by God, being transformed inwardly by this glory into the image of Christ, conformed into the image of Christ through sanctification, and ultimately we shall be glorified. Glorified. And my friends, when you recognize that, you recognize the glory of what we're being offered in Christ. Something the law of Moses could not do. It could point to our need of it. right? It could point to the need of, of God's grace, of the transformation only God could do. It could point to that, but it couldn't provide it. Only Christ could provide this in His availing work. And so again, we recognize this. We stand in light of Christ's accomplished work, transformed by the Spirit to the glory of Almighty God. Paul says, if you can say that for yourself, you have reason to rejoice. Reason to rejoice. And the author of Hebrews, as we come back to it in two weeks, communion next week, two weeks from now back to Hebrews, we're going to see he's making a parallel argument. If you recognize what the new covenant offers and how God had used the old covenant, there's nothing to turn back to. There's no way to go back in light of the fullness. And so, my friends, in recognizing that, let us offer thanksgiving to God. Amen.